91% is by Bossy Edam, produced by Ken Rich at Grand Street Recording, with C music from John Swan. The song Karen 1% is by Sleep Station, featuring Katherine Allison as Karen and Emily Wolf as Marsha. Part 1. As if she were organic. I'm not really as cold as they make me out to be. Yes, when people ask me how I feel, my voice is flat, like my response had been written out beforehand. But that's because I do care so much that I plan everything. And obviously I have to seem calm. I am a black woman, after all. I might have gotten the job regardless, but they never put me in charge. And I can't deal with that because my voice gets this flat affectation whenever someone gives me an order. I have certain talents, but I pay for them with uncertain deficiencies. They're uncertain because I've spent my life finding ways to work around them. I'm not sure where my talent ends and my deficiency begins. My talents, I can't quantify. I feel like I've gotten close once or twice in job interviews when it felt like my life was on the line and the clutter in my head cleared out. Maybe when our time together is through, you will have a better idea than I do. For now, it might be helpful to think of it this way. I know what to do when no one else knows what to do. That's not enough. I know. Let me try again. I have a plan that no one else has thought of. It's not the right way to do things. Well, it's more right than moral. Um, Let's just say that there are situations and people trust me to make decisions. That's the best I can do. I used to think that I like this being who I am. And I don't hate it, but now I feel like it's just a compulsion. I need to be obsessed with something because I fill empty space in such destructive ways. Now, there is only space for decisions I have made and for me to find a way to live with them. I am a government agent. You see that title so often your eyes almost glaze over it, but, you know, from something you've heard a long time ago, that's pretty cool or a little bit evil. I didn't really think about those words until I was told that they would apply to me. I'm an agent, the hand of a nebulous force. I carry out its will independently. Now think about that. I am the hand, the fist of powerful forces. And what do they ask me to do? To apply my own will in their name? What does that say about me, Karen James? That to maintain its power, the government gives me permission to do what comes naturally to me? There is an answer to that question, but I don't have it. It doesn't seem like it should be hard, and I feel like the answer is at the tip of my tongue, but I don't have it. One of my deficiencies. There's no official record of Elba One in the agency's case files. No mention of cybernetics in stacks of patents, no collection of newspaper clippings with reports of sightings across the Midwest. She has become little more than the subtext of vague warnings in training seminars about what can happen when we go too far. She's a spectral presence who defines an era of freewheeling 
experimentation when unsupervised agents with nebulous mandates tested the boundaries between man and God. We had become so practiced that the point where we might reach our fallibility seemed always a speck on the horizon. There is no record of Simon Zoller in the agency's official case files, none of the original Elba, nothing of Charlie and Colonel Eddie or his colloquial insistence that Charlie persevere in the face of certain death. But if you really want to know what happened to me, there are mistakes. References in case files that refer to nothing, inventions without inventors, repairs completed without tools, travel receipts for surveillance of men who never left home, convictions without charges, sentences or judges, sanity, lost, absent trauma or family history. Which of these are mistakes and which of them were placed for someone like you to discover? I cannot answer. But your attempt to reconstruct the basics of my case files, or maybe, forgive me if this seems self-involved, my life and career, had hit a dead end. Then you caught a break. Months worth of personal logs from then-recently tenured agent Karen James hidden in an encrypted file amongst unclassified diaries. And then, of course, you found this volume. I can only offer you a snapshot of my life, spoken and written in quiet moments of reflection. But I would not judge you harshly if by the end of this, you feel as if you know me in ways that I myself am not ready to face. Everything you learn about me will tell you that I joined this agency because here, I can change history. Because piece by piece, we build the future. I only wanted to be a link in the human chain. Yet someone decided that my contribution should be erased and replaced with a brittle, sanitized vessel. I believe I left you this report. And who knows how many of the other puzzle pieces you have found. Because I could not allow the chain to be corrupted. If we are to understand our present... The past cannot be a secret whispered in far-off corridors. If our agency and if our country are to persist beyond the impulses of men who collect information as a means to power, you must know more than just the existence of an agent, Karen James. You must know Karen 1% and how she came to be. This volume is the fruition of my last resort. Now, Marsha, you're about to hear Karen's first impressions of you. Don't worry. I'm mentally prepared on the way over here. That's good, but I mean she does impressions of you. Oh, God. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's not a bad one either. This is chapter two. How many mistakes are we allowed to make? Um, what? I was distracted. I have this bad habit, pulling gum between my teeth with two fingers. Then I let it go, and I watch it inch back toward my mouth bit by bit, until it runs out of energy and hangs in a helpless string waiting for my tongue. Hey, why is my office in a basement? I asked. I think most of the field offices are in places that naturally seem closed off. It's the best kind of security there is. 
The feeling that you're not supposed to be there? Marcia nodded. She was full of little gems like that. The girl hasn't thought of everything, but the things she has thought of, she knows how to think about. Our basement was somewhere in New York City. I can't tell you exactly where because you might show up and I'm imagining you're the kind of person whose safety I would care about. But I can tell you that it was typically Brooklyn, exposed brick running the length of what's really a glorified hallway. My desk was at the far end of it, facing the door. Marsha's was midway through the room facing the wall. Confession? I was more bored than distracted. I can get us some new bulbs. Marsha turned to me as if I were interested in decorations. My boss warned me about this room. I wasn't even looking at her, but sometimes Marsha would talk to me as if I were the other half of her internal dialogue. I felt her eyes on the back of my neck, waiting for me to say something. Why do they have us working cases that aren't even ready for me yet? I guess maybe to give you a chance to settle in, Marsha replied as she stuffed a pile of half-crumpled papers into a filing cabinet. Settle in. Look at this place. Some hipster definitely grew large amounts of the illegal kind of weed in here. Whoa, how could you tell? Marsha's face crunched up behind her brown mop of hair. You can't smell that skunk? I waited for Marsha to sniff, then I laughed. <laughs> it's the power outlets. I worked a case about a spot like this for the bureau. That's the kind of thing I do when I'm bored. Laugh at someone else's expense. Marcia smiled at me and stood to stretch her arms with a set of keys dangling from between her fingers. Where are you going? Our scientist has a new P.O. box where he's getting some parts shipped. I just need to show him where it is. Oh yeah? Let me get my coat. I was so desperate for something to do besides read memos. I pretended to accidentally talk over her. I can handle it myself. It's really just a quick errand, she said while I went on. I'm just about wrapped up here and I need to get a point of reference for our drop-offs. She laughed politely. Mine was more mercenary. I waited until she spoke again so I could interrupt her. I handle all drop-offs on this assignment. I mean, I'd love to have you, but she said while I cut in, I think I'll come along. I'd just like to meet our scientist. I, um... Marcia couldn't tell why I was being so insistent. Neither did I, really. But I was winning. She stammered. I know you've read it and everything, but just due diligence, the briefing book on managing scientific projects says the lead agent isn't supposed to meet the new contractor until there's an initial prototype to review, to guard against the appearance of... You're right. I did read it. A bit more curt than I had intended, granted. Marcia's mouth was frozen in place, halfway open, negotiating between two or three boilerplate corporate responses. She had such an innocent face. Only slightly angular, perfect glowing skin and red blush on her cheeks. Curly hair hung over her forehead. Her personnel file says Italian-Korean, but I don't think I ever asked her about it. At that point, I didn't know what had happened during her previous assignment. But in conversation, she would always talk around its existence. So I didn't ask her about that, either. That face really was innocent. And I could tell she used it to her advantage. That fake reticence and goofy smiles. I think she'd rip me limb from limb if she were ordered to. Marsha went from top of her class, a master of biology, to the agency. That's all I needed to know to be careful around her. Wow. Okay, Karen. 
<laughs> the agency has a well-worn tactic for recruiting recent graduates like her. In exchange for special consideration for their grant applications, academics recommend promising students like Marsha to the agency. Then the students are impressed with a series of cloak and dagger meetings in crowded hotel lobbies or at the third most westerly oak in a park. On the final page of Marsha's file, the last sentence offers this rather bureaucratic assessment of her character. In conclusion, the applicant would make an excellent associate field agent. Sounds great, Marsha said when she finally did speak. I like the company. Then she paused and said it again as if her voice had been too squeaky for my ears. Yeah. All right, let's go. I'll drive. The car was silent for most of our trip. No radio. I was preoccupied with a loose strand in the knitting of my seatbelt, trying and failing to pull it out with two fingers. Why are we stopping here? I asked Marsha as she came to a stop in a grocery store parking lot. I don't know. She responded absently, scanning faces around the busy entrance. Simon wanted to meet us here. She looked so... earnest, with two hands on the wheel, sitting bolt upright like a crash test dummy in a navy blue blazer. He sets the meeting places? What? I asked. Why? You must establish dominance, Marsha. She smiled at me. I said he didn't have to come. The back door of Marsha's SUV popped open with a concerted grunt and the rustle of paper on plastic. The man climbing in had a grocery bag under each arm and thin, almost purple-red lips. But the most eye-catching thing about him was this out-of-style haircut that parted wide in the middle and ended in perfect order at the base of his neck. He moved like a bird examining its cage. I can't imagine how I looked gawking at him, but he adjusted his glasses and made a face that I think reflected mine. Simon, good to see you, Marcia said as if he were incapable of recognizing her patronizing tone. She was right. Thanks for meeting me here. So, so nasal. I just had to pick up a few things for the lab, and my car is in storage. I really was overcome with curiosity when I leaned between the front seats to pull open his shopping bags. He slapped my hand away like my grandmother when I tried to get at her Werther's. I looked over at Marcia, and she was stifling a laugh as I rubbed the back of my palm. One of the TV dinners had already toppled onto the seat beside him. Salisbury steak, I said somewhere between them as if I were addressing a talk show audience. Always delicious. Marcia turned red and pressed a fist over her mouth as we pulled out of the lot. Um, excuse me? Who are you? This is Karen James, Simon. She's the agent in charge of this project. Oh, great. Well... I'm very pleased to meet you, Agent James. He offered me a limp fish handshake. Clammy. Just Karen is fine, I replied as I smiled at him through the rearview mirror. He was staring out the window, so I kept talking. I'm sorry about knocking over some of your groceries, Simon. No, you're not, he replied under his breath to a stern look from Marcia. What? They never are. Who is they, Simon? My partner sounded like his older sister. He sighed at her with what I assume was a mock exasperation given his age. 
It's okay, Karen. I know you didn't mean it. Marsha and I traded a look. We arrived at the drop-off location for Simon's Parts, the back room of a hardware store in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Do you know how convenient this is for me? He asked Marsha. I hoped you'd like it. It's not convenient at all. When am I going to pick up an ISO motion processor and... Oh, oh, oh yeah, I, I forgot I need a plunger. Marsha's witty retort, I'm sure, was interrupted by her phone. She kept looking at me with wide, darting eyes. I told her I knew what she was going to say and that I didn't mind. It's my old case. They're looking for some files over at 6th Avenue. I left that place in such a rush. She didn't believe me about not minding. I guess I'm more intimidating than I give myself credit for. Really, don't worry about it. I put my hand on her shoulder as Simon inspected rolls of measuring tape. I'll call an agency car to pick us up at the coffee shop across the street. A few minutes later, I found myself across our weird scientist at a small wooden table, with two hastily opened packets of sugar and scattered white grains between us. Simon, you know... as I cleared my throat, trying to draw his eyes away from the window beside us. I'm not supposed to ask you any specific questions about our project yet. That doesn't leave us much to talk about, does it? He stirred his coffee with an elaborate counterclockwise twirl. Oh, don't be so sure about that, I replied. What? He asked with absent-minded disdain. You want to talk about how following orders is a sacrificial blow to our egos whose blood fertilizes the rich gardens of bureaucracy? That can't be what you think of us. Why not? You just said we're not supposed to talk about something. Who supposed that for you? Was it the deputy director, or is it even worse, in some book they made you read? I couldn't stop myself from smiling. It had been so long since anyone spoke to me like this. Well, I said... That can't be all you think of us. Because here I am, your supervising agent, free to hold you captive over your coffee. He gave me this dismissive sort of grimace, like my happiness was a burden he would have to bear. I suppose I just love science, he said, waving his free hand. Enough to deal with all of this with you. Simon, you sound like a man who has something to get off his chest. I put both of my elbows on the table and leaned toward him. Come on, let's hear it. He looked into my eyes with some mirth. Why would you ever want to do what you do? Well, I gripped my white mug with two hands and sipped from it. You work for me. Why would you do that? I'm sure my answer is in there somewhere. Have you ever been in love... He had hardly even blinked. I was stuck on something in his eyes, raw and exposed. (sighs) Yes, I was. I flicked my hair back, an obvious tell. What happened? He asked at the exact moment that I asked myself. I was caught between going on, trying to find meaning in that moment, and stopping myself from saying jinx. It faded out. Circumstances. Your job... I didn't react, even though he waited for me. That's what I don't get about you people. Doing what you do. Making the compromises you make. Like, being compromised. All while you wait with 
breathless anticipation for your one true love? Is that how you get up in the morning? I smiled obligingly. Do I seem like one to wait? His eyes finally left mine, and he sipped his coffee, face curled up in thought. No. No, you don't. I think this is the moment when his hostility melted away, when he became interested in me, and I was more than the government product manager that researched gossip about and trembled before. But you are waiting now. You're waiting for me. That's why you don't like me. I met his gaze. I'm waiting for love, Simon. He finally smiled, and I heard his laugh, a sort of snicker restrained by his closed teeth. Simon, why did you ask me about love? It's just hard to imagine you in your pantsuit presenting your cheek for a kiss. I leaned back, posed casually. Now that I knew this meeting would help me extract useful information about our scientist, I became patient. My discomfort with deception faded away like it always does. Well, I cocked my eye up at him. I think a lot of guys feel the same way about me. But you still think there is one person out there for you, even if you never, ever find him. He is out there. And if you had somehow managed, uh, made a series of decisions that led to a chain of events... Yeah, or maybe he has to do all the right things, too, and one of us is listening to our fate, and the other one doesn't know how. That's beautiful, Karen. I bowed my head in playful acknowledgement. But it's not true. No? He leaned forward. Gesture sharp, short, energetic. No, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the biology of our brains. But it's not so bad. I could believe in a world where what you said is somehow possible. Maybe not in a perfect mathematical one-to-one, but... What do you mean, Simon? He was like an overeager, well, scientist. One of those television documentaries about sunspots or why string theory hasn't really been disproved. For the record, it has been. I mean, love doesn't have to be true. And I don't even mean that soulmate garbage you're trying to convince me that you believe. I mean, people can create, they can fabricate a new brain chemistry, a faux love, that can completely convince someone else's brain chemistry that you're responding to their real love. And not only is that not rare, it's fairly common. And that's the problem with love, the whole concept of it. Whatever truth there is, lies are built into our neurobiology. So you never hope to love, Simon? That seems like an awfully sad life. I was concerned. Approaching honest. No, I strive for love every day. Don't you get it? Cybernetics, like love, is inevitable. It's the final evolution of truth, our salvation against the lies that dominate our hearts. It tells us, it tells us that it's just a matter of time before our essential goodness achieves total victory. We can eliminate the biological imperative of the lie and create love that is strong enough to know what love is. The barista over at the counter pretended to be distracted, wiping an already clean mug. Simon glanced over briefly, but I couldn't tell whether he was self-conscious or annoyed. And there's your answer. My answer to what? Why, you're my supervising agent. Huh. 
I couldn't think of anything to say. Simon waited for me, pleased with the effect of his speech. I asked abruptly, Have they told you what you're going to use your creation for? Who is they? He had an expression like the straight man in a puppet show. I scoffed. He imitated my flat affect. My creation? That's elegant. But her name is Elba. Elba? I faltered, almost choking on my coffee. That's elegant. He smiled and shook his head. You are such a government agent. I looked down into my lap, avoiding his eyes. But there is just a little bit of living human tissue in there. I might be alive? I asked, looking up at him from a slouch. Yeah, yeah, just barely. A little bit of life in your eyes. I don't know what it is. It's... He stopped to think. It's about 1%. I'm 1% alive? No, you're very much alive. You are 1% authentic human being and the rest is government agent. His words stung me slowly when I couldn't think of a comeback. Karen 1%. That's what you are. Karen 1%. Yeah, I think our car is here. I said, pulling cash out of my purse too quickly and dropping change onto the table. Always just on time, right? Doesn't sound like the federal government to me. Ha! Karen 1%. But I like you anyway. I'm glad it's you, Agent James, and not someone else. That's Karen. Not 1%, it's just Karen. You've always been Karen. He stopped in the entryway. But now you have one. Simon shook his finger in my face. I pushed him out the door. We sat silent in the back seat of an agency sedan. But it was a happy sort of silence. We kind of get along, and that's good enough for now. As the car wound through sets of warehouses with wooden pallets stacked a story high on the sidewalk and artist lofts layered with graffiti broken only by iron-barred windows, I considered love. Mostly what it had to do with my assignment. <laughs>